Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. Welcome to another installment of a beautiful podcast. How are you this fine Thursday afternoon? It's Thursday, the 25th of August, as I record this, and I confess, I'm just a bit forlorn. The summer is almost out, and soon we begin the dark and disturbing portion of the year. <sighs> you know, that time. Uh, it's okay, I suppose. I, I'll just have more time to get stuff done. Uh, and of course, when in doubt, there's always Hawaii, right? You can always just go find some beach uh, somewhere on the planet where it's nice and warm and um, watch the watch the dolphins do their thing or something, you know? It'll be fine. But I don't like it when the summer ends, you know? Uh, especially um, my summer here in the Northern Hemisphere. Obviously, uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, they're going through a completely different experience. But um, it's okay. You know, the it, it's hard to believe this uh, the summer is almost over. It's not, I mean, we still have, you know, several weeks, right? But uh, uh, it's not it's not yet completely out, but it sure feels like it is. The sun's now setting a full hour or more earlier than when it set at the zenith uh, a month or so ago. Uh, my, my my daughter, she's she's a senior in high school and she just resumed school. Um, was it last week or the week before? I think it was last week, right? Um, amazing, right? So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my best to maximize my son to code ratio for the next two months, uh, especially as I'm working on so much and I, uh, uh, I, I need not, uh, you know, I need to f- not to uh, forget to enjoy the summer because I, I always wish I had spent more time outside in the later months. Uh, and of course, even if the days become shorter, there's still a lot uh, to love about the later fall and winter months. The one thing I've long since missed and that's become a sort of tradition is DevOx, uh, in particular, the, the DevOx edition in Belgium, the original one in Antwerp. I haven't spoken in Belgium. <clears throat> I haven't spoken in Belgium uh, since before the pandemic, and I miss it so. And I'm excited to report uh, here now that I will be back uh, at this year's first in-person edition since the pandemic. I'll be co-presenting with my friend, uh, my longtime friend in Google's own uh, James Ward. Um, and it's in person, right? We'll be in person in Antwerp. Uh, they have, uh, DevOx has done such an amazing job, right? Such an amazing job of balancing safety concerns with community. Uh, and they, unfortunately, they they had to make a decision as to whether to, to cancel or hold in-person events uh, for 2020 and 2021. And like so many conferences, um, before, you know, as well, they, they had to make that decision and, and they chose not to have in-person events, which 100%, like, you know, rock on. That was the best thing you could have done, I think. And if they were making that assessment, they were, you know, they, they've got the data on the ground. They know what the risks look like. Uh, and I just love them for, in my opinion, going in the direction of safety, you know. Um, there were plenty of online events. It wasn't like we had no content. Uh, and obviously we all missed uh, being in person, but for a huge show like DevOps to to leave that cash on the table in the interest of safety, it was just, you know, makes my heart grow a few sizes bigger. It's an awesome, awesome thing that they did. And uh, uh, I have missed them. I have missed the show. I've missed everything. Um, if you haven't been to DevOps, it's a standard. You have to go. You can't be in the Java community and uh, and and not go to a Java 1 and a DevOps event in, at some point, right? I've been in the Java community in some form or, form or another now for 25 plus years, uh, you know, 20 uh, years as a, as a professional, right? Um, and I just, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't mean to be arrogant. Um, not everybody can get to these shows. But if you can, you know, 
do. They're phenomenal. They're phenomenal events. They are, they're the beating heart uh, of our community and I've just, I've just missed them. Um, so that's later this year. Don't miss that. I'll also be at Java One, by the way. Um, uh, and that's not just the first Java One since the pandemic. It's the first Java One in like five years. Uh, remember, they had a brief period even before the pandemic where they dropped the, the Java One moniker and they had something else uh, instead. So these final few months of the year, they're going to be special in their own wonderful ways as well. And of course, I'm keeping busy working on tons of new Spring Tips videos, working on maximizing the value of the Spring Tips Twitter handle as well. In particular, uh, follow at Spring Tips Live, one word uh, for more. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that's happening um, and, you know, and will be happening soon to, to make that, that particular follow even more worth uh, the investment. Uh, you probably won't be disappointed. You know what else isn't disappointing uh, and that I used to enjoy a lot before the pandemic? Bumping into my friend and fellow Java champion, Christoph Engelbert. Christoph's one of those folks I bumped into enough at various shows around Europe uh, and the world at large that I almost uh, felt at home just hanging out with him at whatever conference or, or airport uh, lounge we happened to, to find ourselves. Um, uh, I love his work. Um, he's, you know, you might've known him from his work on Hazelcast uh, as a developer advocate and a contributor. Um, and he's done a bunch of other stuff as we'll talk about in the show today. Um, and now he's at Timescale DB, which is Mary's two of my favorite things, PostgreSQL, which is a, a database and time series databases, uh, which support use cases, uh, around observability. Right. And so <laughs> I love time series databases. I love, uh, PostgreSQL. I love learning from Christoph. Uh, and so this just seemed like a match. Um, uh, in heaven. So, uh, very exciting episode for me. I hope you got something out of it or you get something out of it. I surely did. Uh, and I know you will as well. Enjoy. Oh man, I have been waiting literally years for this episode. Uh, I, I mean, well, first of all, so, so, so that I don't butcher it. Uh, can you introduce yourself and uh, tell them who you are? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Finally, as you said, my it, pleasure. it's been way too long. Um, so my name is Chris, Chris Engelbert. Um, uh, Josh and I know for a lot of years, um, I've been with Hazycast for a long time. I've been with Instana. And um, well, what, what, did we, what did I do in the past? I, I flew around the world and, and told people how awesome data stores are of different kinds, key value stores. Um, I tried to explain to developers how important observability is and why you sh actually should care. And uh, right now, I just recently joined Timescale, which is a time series database based on Postgres. So now I tell people not only why you should care, about anything observability, but also how you can actually store your time series in a meaningful fashion, have all the beauty of SQL to, to get all the analytics you want. That's awesome. I love timescale DB. I mean, and that's, I love Postgres and I love timescale. So that, that we'll get to that. Definitely. That's a, uh, <laughs> I was super excited about that, but I do want to talk about you first of all. I mean, so you sure. just mentioned that we used to, uh, we used to bump into each other. Um, <laughs> you know not once or twice but like seemingly every month you know uh for for years you and, and it's worth mentioning you and i don't live in the same corners of the planet where roughly where are you on the planet right no we, we're, we're certainly not in the same city we're not even in the same country or, or continent um yeah. so so 
for for um people from the states i love to claim that i'm living midwest germany uh that's to somebody with with um a single state larger than the whole country doesn't mean anything um so midwest germany is, is around dusseldorf cologne um i think that gives people a good good feeling it's it's basically uh 20 minutes away from the dutch border if you look at the map yeah okay cool um so uh and you worked as you've worked as a developer advocate in all these years i've known you uh uh at hazelcast i think that's the first time you and i bumped in, into each other right um but what's your background? Like, how did you get into software, for example? Uh, that's that's actually a fairly good question. It's it's not like the 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 standard setup. I've never went to university, no college degree, no nothing. Um, I started programming when I was like about ten years old uh, with my good old C sixty four and an Atari uh, for a couple of weeks. Um, the actual games kept me fascinated, and then I wanted to figure out what does this stuff that I have to type in actually means. So I tried to, or started to to play around with that and changed things and 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 got some different colors and some different characters and stuff like that with basically no knowledge of the English language yet at that point in time. Um, and ever since, I kind of kept going. So I I. I Got uh, self-employed for the first time when I was like 18 years old uh, while doing my military replacement service um, at that time. And I kind of, well, it's embarrassing to say, but it was mostly websites and PHP and stuff. I, I, I cut this out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, was, I did a lot I was of trying stuff. To so I'm coming, from, hold my right, I'm coming from a really, really strong engineering background um, with a lot of different languages. Java uh, is still my first love, even though I haven't used it for quite a few years, unfortunately. Um, but that is a different story, and we probably come back to that in a minute. Yep. Um, uh, C, C++, uh, Kotlin. I really love Kotlin. I use Go and, and TypeScript and JavaScript and I don't know what else, except yeah. for um, my favorite claim is there's the free bet piece, which is Python, PHP, and Perl. Three bad peas. Yeah, Python, it, PHP, it, and Perl. It's and actually four peas. Yeah, PHP <laughs> is the only bad P. I, I, I disagree no. <laughs> with 75% of that assertion right there. 75%. <laughs> Perl is like, okay, so Perl was a systems language, right? I could build user interfaces on, you know, Windows. I could build uh, services that ran as cron jobs. I could build websites. I could build whatever. When PHP first came out, what could I do? I could just build websites, and not even very well. It, it didn't have even. It, it doesn't. It doesn't even have like an application session, like an application state, like a global one variable for all users. Well, you, you can, but you right. really don't want it. <laughs> you don't want to, right? It, it makes it super hard. So, so. Perl was a general purpose language. It happened to be kind of gnarly, but at least I could do general purpose things with it. Whereas PHP is a subset of JSP without any of the benefits of JSP, which are few, right? It doesn't have the comp right. compilation model of Java, the security model, or the ecosystem. No, no, no. We're going to have to, we're going to have to. And then Python. Oh my God, man. And then, so, so he, he, give, give, give me, let me give the spiel of, of the, all of that, right? What's, what's the fourth one, though? Or the third uh, one? P, P, PHP has two P's. So it's four, no. four P's. No, but Perl, <laughs> Python, and what was the other one? Um, uh, uh, Perl, Python, and PHP. Didn't you have a fourth one? Yeah. P, P, PHP has two P's. Anyway. Oh. 
it, it's three languages for a piece. Um, so give me, <laughs> let me, let me give the spiel. So please, Pearl, Pearl looks like regex on steroids. And it is not right. easy to read. So that's why I really don't like it. Uh, you can do amazing stuff with that, uh, hands down, but not my language of choice. PHP, sure. well, you, you said all of it. Um, at some point, it was like PHP 5 or 6. They added objects, but they left all right. the old crap in it. Um, so yeah. why would you? Uh, just, I know. I'm with you. And, and, and I agree. You can still do amazing stuff with PHP. Um, apart from all the security issues, I think WordPress is actually a really good example of how large of a system you can build with that. I just oh, yeah. don't want and yeah. to. And then for, for Python, <clears throat> well, that, that is my personal issue. Uh, I hate any kind of language that uses indentation as, as syntax. Oh, yes, okay. YAML, I'm looking at you. Yeah, YAML's, YAML's annoying. <laughs> But and it's 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 a bad idea for a programming language. It's not a better idea for any kind of configuration language. For sure, yeah. Uh, okay, I grant you that, sir. But uh, Python, I I have a a deep uh, uh, abiding love of Python. I've been using it for twenty plus years now. I've been using it almost as long as I've been using Java. So it's sort of uh, I just don't. I'm not nearly so good at it. But on it, Python's dangerous because you don't have to get too deep to be productive. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so, so I never really got that deep, not, not nearly to the extent I got uh, with Java, you know? Yeah, um, I think my, my, my dislike for Python mostly comes from the fact that um, one project I work, worked with in the past, um, they didn't really have rules on what kind of white spaces to use. And we know the right. biggest flame war is Tapster spaces. And right. Python is famous for just mixing it up and making it all beauty, right? So. With this project, it was actually Jython in this case, for oh, all the obvious reasons, right? Um, so you, whenever you wanted to change the script, you basically ended up copying or duplicating the line before just to make sure you had the same indentation and then add whatever you wanted. So that kind of ended up making me hate it. Um, but with all the um, all the increase and all the growth and, and, and stuff of... Um, all the analytics environments and stuff. I mean, there is an amazing Python ecosystem for anything, machine learning, data analytics, all that good stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, Python's dope. I don't know. It's okay. It's fine. Just as long as we're on the same page about PHP, which is... Uh, exactly. You know, <laughs> it's, it, it is obviously not the worst thing in the world. So, PHP. Yeah. So I, there, I that's a nice thing for me to say. You know, I'm... Yeah, yeah. But you can do all the fancy stuff you can do with JavaScript. Like minus works different from plus. Uh, you can have a string minus one, but you can't have, uh, you can have a, a string plus one, but you can have it minus one. And yeah. All the dynamic languages are beautiful. Or, Not. oh yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, okay. So you started off doing programming languages, no, no classical background. Same, same here, right? Like I, I just picked it up as a, as a young and, uh, you know, uh, for better, or for worse, I, 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 I've learned some of it, not nearly enough to be, uh, you know, uh, what's, what's, what's the right word. I, I'm not, um, cocky about it. Like I, I'm not good enough to be <laughs> cocky. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. I, I, I know. You know yeah. Like I've, I've, I've gotten enough knowledge in my 25, ish years doing software to know that I don't know anything. That's all I know, you know, like it's, it's just <laughs> taking me a long time. 
Right. I, to be honest, I think if you if you came into the industry that way, uh, that is probably a very common uh, conception, right? You, you understand yeah. that you always have to learn that there's always new stuff because you that is how you actually learned it. Nobody taught you how to do it. Right. Um, same, same, same thing for me. Um, I love learning new stuff. As I said, I haven't used Java in a while, uh, at least not for like a lot of stuff. Um, so with my own startup, uh, which I, I left before joining Timescale now, right. uh, we used a lot of Go code, um, which comes from a really... Well, it it is it was an accident basically. Um, so while we well, while I was doing the the prototype, the initial thing, um, it was we used subdomains and Go was the easiest thing to get. Let's encrypt set up with um automatically generated subdomains based on customers, right. and it was like fifteen lines of code. So that was beauty and. Like just kept going, and when we started to to separate it out into independent services and smaller chunks and stuff, um, because the code was already around, we just stayed with Go for a while. Um, but I love Go for microservices. I think anything more complicated is a real bummer. Um, <laughs> but same thing as with PHP. Look at Kubernetes, right? <laughs> it is Go. I mean, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, you can but, do to that. Be fair, but well, to be fair, Kubernetes is a bunch of microservices, so that fair, fair that enough. Checks out. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Okay, fair enough. I'll give you that. You can, we can, you can be right on both fronts and not be contradictory. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no. So okay, so that was so okay. So you were, um, you 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 left Hazelcast. Can we talk about Hazelcast for a bit? Sure. Actually, wait. No, before that, what was it, what were you doing before Hazelcast? Um, before Hazelcast, well, I was doing quite a lot of different things. Um, I mostly worked in, in, in companies in Germany. So uh, Hazelcast nice. was my first international gig, which was, which was also fun. Um, I worked for a company and we created like, uh, for internships, like, like, um, online tests, uh, in, in nice. Germany, the way it works normally when you, when you sign up for an internship or for an apprenticeship or something, you normally come into the company, uh, with a lot of other candidates, you do some tests and, the situation is always really awkward, right? You you sit on site and you don't know the people and the test situation is, is bad enough. So we came up with the idea, hey, you can actually do this in an online situation or an online session uh, and people can do it at home whenever they feel it's the best time for them. Um, right. So that was the first thing I was like all uh, JSP and uh, struts. So you see how old that thing is. Um, um, and, and MySQL and Postgres, right. um, from there, uh, I Postgres. went, yeah, yeah. Struts, right. No, um, uh, no. Po oh, actually struts is great, but no, I was talking about Postgres. Uh, oh, Postgres. Yeah. Yeah. Postgres is, <laughs> but it was, it was kind of the same thing, right? You, you had a lot of like test results and we actually kept a track of every time somebody changed the field, um, just to make sure that if for some reason the the uh, session was canceled, so we had at least like intermediate results. So we already been there with time series. I just didn't know that it is a time series at that point in time. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, from from there, I went to HRS, uh, hotel reservation service, and we rebuilt all of the internal booking system and and rates calculation system. So hotel reservation service basically. Uh, is the initial Expedia. Uh, it is the company that came up with the idea of, of pre-buying or pre-allocating rooms um, wow. and, and, and reselling them for a fixed price. Before that, it was nothing like that. Um, 
And the original booking engine was somewhere from the early 90s. So it was one of the first companies actually going for internet and stuff. Um, it was all C and C++. And we, nice. we've, we've rewritten that all <laughs> in like a spring kind of uh, framework, uh, which was also nice because you have all the interesting problems, right? Um, calculating the best, the, the best in quotes, uh, rates right. for a hotel room or uh, in, in general for a set of hotels in a city is kind of like the severing tradesman, uh, traveling salesman problem because you kind of <laughs> have to go a certain length, but you can't, in, in, in the worst case for, for a city like New York or um, Paris, you just can't calculate all of the possible combinations just to make sure you actually get to the to the lowest rate so you right. you have to do some heuristic and, and try to figure out how to do stuff that was a really interesting problem um specifically right there and we had a lot of really cool like legacy issues so when they started there was nothing like a discounted rate because the idea of a pre-allocated room or a pre-allocated content didn't exist yet so right. they had like a standard rate and and discounts were like negative um, and and business rooms were negative discounts but you could always just apply one discount so if you had like a 10 percent coupon and a business room and yeah you get all kinds of interesting problems with like these old legacy systems really cool stuff um yeah and but but for Problems I don't want to go into. Uh, I only stayed like three quarters of a year, and then I moved actually uh, to on to Blue Byte, which is like the German division of of Ubisoft, and stayed there for a oh, while, wow. and 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 worked on uh, game service actually. Um, See that is that stuff is super interesting to me. <laughs> uh, so you were doing like the back end of a game? Yeah, right, right. So we were actually writing uh, game service in. In, in Java for some of the browser games like Anna Online and Ends of Settlers Online. Right. Um, and um, because I, I did game servers as a hobby for a while, basically reverse engineering and, and, and breaking encryption for certain uh, more, fam uh, uh, more famous MMORPGs and and busy and writing replacement game servers for that, um, I was really into that and, and I wanted to do it for life. And thought that would actually be really cool, but it was it was fun. I, I applied uh, for the job, and at that point I was still at HRS, and I ha um I, I I basically was on my way home, um, got called up by the guys, uh, went into the wrong subway, uh, didn't realize anywhere while we were talking, and when I ha hang up the phone, I was like looking around like what the f where where am I? I was somewhere in, in Cologne. I had no idea because I took the wrong subway. I was, I was so surprised oh, they wow. actually called me back. <laughs> that, oh, was, wow. that was real fun. And then they gave me like um, a 24-hour project, a very simple game, um, uh, implementing the game itself, the game logic, a level editor and stuff like that. So um, I literally, just before like the 23-hour mark, because it was freaking tired at that point in time i send in the game no level editor but the basic game worked and i was like okay they never gonna call back now um so they they did uh which was oh, good the first the, the first shock they actually called back and during the interview they they told me i was actually one of the few people that ever made a working game in 24 hours so like what what are you talking about <laughs> why would you ask then yeah 
Right. So it was, I was like, okay, you didn't, you didn't get the level editor done. Uh, they, that, 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 that just it. like a shoot for the stars, aim for the moon, aim for the stars, settle for the moon kind of thing. Right. Right. Kind of, yeah. kind of like that. And they were like super happy and super surprised how deep I was into all like bit magic and, and, and all of that. Um, obviously. Right. Because I did protocol reverse engineering. So you, you are into that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I basically rewrote most of the stuff for, for the game server backend, brought everything up to speed in terms of non-blocking, um, non-synchronizing Java code, uh, right. re-implementing all of the, the data communication between the backend and the, the action script-based front-end client and all that. So that was, that was fun. Um, and I also introduced Hazelcast. Um, because ah. the, the, most of the guys were no Java people. So they came from a very traditional, like handheld background and stuff like that. So they, they knew exactly how to squeeze the la- least or the, the last bit off of information and speed out of a Z uh, AD CPU, but they were not like really Java people. So right. I tried to find something where you actually had like a distributed ha- system and you could pass uh, pass messages around and stuff like that and i found hazelcast and i wanted to where i found it a while ago um and i wanted to try it out and i tried it on a weekend on a monday i came in and I'm like okay I'm, I'm gonna introduce that and i was it, it, it lacked a couple of features and the way it works it's open source so you add stuff blah back and forth um and well Eventually, um, at that point in time, uh, Apache Direct Memory was still a thing. That was an off-heap implementation for for Java, where I actually contributed like a uh, um, a code generating serializer. So that's how I ended up in the Direct Memory team. And I I wrote the guys at Hazelcast like, hey, um, I understand you have this like off-heap implementation, which is your enterprise feature, but I'd really love to re-implant that on Apache Direct Memory. But I understand I break your business model. <laughs> um, are you okay with that? Uh, I just want to be nice and ask beforehand. And we're like, sure, you can do that. Um, but don't you want to work on the real thing? And a few few days later, I was in in Istanbul for the first time interviewing with the with one of the founders, and n- not even a month later, I think I was was part of Hazelcast. That was really weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, so not even a month later. That's a uh, that's uh, for the for the for the Americans listening. It's because in Europe they typically have contracts <laughs> that make it hard to leave a company, right? Um, yeah so, like if, there's if, if I, yeah there's a whole process to gracefully like here in america you have to you it, like in california like it's not the, actually this is the other thing it's it's not the same in every state but in right. california for example i can technically just quit today i can just say i'm done and, and start a new job tomorrow it's good form to give two weeks notice to say right. hey i'm exactly uh, in two weeks i'm leaving but but technically, legally, they could fire me today, and and then by the same token, I can leave today, I can quit today. So, um, but anyway, but okay. So within a month, very quickly in European right, time, right. four four weeks notice is like the, the typical thing in in, in Europe, um, right. So yeah, uh, I joined Hazelcast. Um, I've been with the with the core engineering team uh, for about a year. Um, I was number seven or eight uh, in terms of employees, which was like super fun, super early. Um, and and worked on the core implementations and stuff like that before we finally decide okay we need to go a little bit more like public facing and 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 um like 
get a little bit deeper into all of the community. And somehow it ended up being me doing most of the sessions. So eventually we made it official and I became like the developer advocate or at that point in time, I'm still the evangelist um, for, for Hazelcast. Um, well, and that is, I think, where we met first. Um, so fairly early when I when I actually took over this uh, position. So I, I uh, okay, in, t- in 2010, I actually turned down a job at a game company um, right. in, in Los Angeles, a very big one. Uh, and I think they were using a distributed data grid as well, right, at the time. And it made a lot of sense because if you're doing massively right. multiplayer online role-playing games, then you have a lot of distributed state that needs to be consistent across a whole the whole planet, right? The whole world needs to see right, the same exactly. state quickly. Um, and so, so it's funny you should say that. It's, it's, it's not, it wasn't just my, my experience then. Um, uh, the, the data grid that this company w- was looking at was not, uh, sadly, Hazelcast, right? Um, it was another one that required hemorrhoids, right? Like you actually had to, you actually had to have hemorrhoids before the service would start up. Um, you know what a hemorrhoid is? Is that a word that yeah, doesn't yeah, translate? Yeah, sure. Yeah, a pain in the butt, right? Um, yeah, it was just an absolute agonizing experience. And then here comes Hazelcast. And I remember Talib Osterk, he's the, um, I, I saw him. Yep. Yeah. Um, I saw him speak about this back in like 2010, right? In Bulgaria one year. And he's a, he's kind of a, well, he's charming and sweet, but he's also a mad scientist, right? He's, he, I remember him talking about this. He's like, why can't it just be this simple? And it's like, well, yeah, why can't it? And, and remember, this is right around the same time as I had just talked to uh, that other company. And I had experience by this point using things like uh, coherence and, of right. course, uh, what is now called Apache Geode and all this stuff. So Hazelcast to me was like, there's no way that works. It's too easy. It's too, look right. at it. It's just one static method. And I've got distributed map, you know, a distributed map. And it's like, you know, it's, just especially with the, right. Especially with the standard Java interfaces, right? It, it looked yeah, yeah. exactly, Java, it was a drop in replacement, which bite us uh, from time to time that people are like, using it like literal re- replacement without even thinking that you actually now have like a lot of network traffic going on. Um, right. Been there, done that uh, with some customer requests, was hired for like two days of consulting, came in 10 minutes later, was like, ah, how do I tell them they're actually stupid? Um, no. <laughs> without telling them, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it it was an amazing it is an amazing amazing absolutely piece of it still yeah. is uh, and and with my own startup i was actually using hazelcast as well why wouldn't you I, I it's very nice actually what always struck me about this was you maybe maybe you started this i don't know but the hazelcast folks had t-shirts with code and i i knew how hazelcast worked because i saw talib talk about it and then i did demos on it and so i actually knew that what was on that t-shirt wasn't like an excerpt it wasn't like a small bit of code taken out just for demo. That was it. Right. That was the functioning code to get a distributed cluster working on a part. You know, it was absolutely insane. You know, uh, now and now, of course, nowadays, you know, Hazelcast does so much more than just smart distributed maps. You know. But I okay. agree. That was not me. I think I was still uh, Miko playing all the the marketing. Oh, bus, Miko but- Matsumura. 
Yeah, exactly. But yeah. he was amazing. Like, I love the T-shirts. And, and one thing that I always loved about the Hazelcast T-shirt, they were amazing quality. I still have, like, some of the very early Hazelcast T-shirts. And you can, they're, they're still good, right? Yeah. Most of it, like, good quality. giveaway T-shirts, they're, like, super poor quality. Two times washing, you can basically throw them away. And and <laughs> I always, I always, always like, told told the the guys like hey we really really have to make good quality t-shirts because people love them and we want to wear the, uh, we want to have them wear them as long yeah. as possible yeah and, and it, i my uh, i know my partner appreciates that tammy she she loves all the swag t-shirts that i get that are <laughs> like she knows which ones which ones are good you know because they she'll wear them to work or she'll wear them right to sleep or whatever you know <sighs> okay so um so anyway, I loved, I, I you know I loved that you were at Hazelcast. I'm a big fan. I didn't know about that background in the uh, just you know, the Apache uh, project there. That's fascinating. Did they ever end up moving to that, or did you just re-implement it, or what? what was um, the... So so what, what... don't tell me any secrets <laughs> I shouldn't know though. Uh, so yeah. so the unfortunate thing is that the Apache direct memory in itself um, went to the attic. So it's not an active project anymore. Um, I still there would be some interesting things if somebody wants to pick up and 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 get it restarted. Uh, it was basically an off-heap implementation. Um, yeah. uh, uh, and as I said, uh, I, I as a side project, I started like a code generating um, serializer, basically analyzing the objects you wanted to serialize based on reflection, um, and then generate Java bytecode on the fly uh, for highest performance. Uh, these cool. days, probably not as necessary anymore due to all the new, new fancy stuff we have in Java. But I, at that point in time, it was really cool. Um, and they asked me if I want to contribute that. And that's how I joined the Apache Foundation and this direct memory project. So let's talk um, about off-heap for a second. I, sure. I don't know if people appreciate what that is, especially in the context of distributed data grids. If you're dealing with, like a data grid can handle gigabytes or terabytes of data, right? That's the whole idea is right. you're, you're not just dealing with hundreds of megabytes or whatever you might have for your typical RAM uh, allocation for your JVM process. And so in order for this to work, if it's you can't just be limited by Java, right? If you have, let's say you created a, a network cloud, a, a cloud of services, a cloud of JVMs that all connect to each other and they set up this network, this ontology, and you want to share data in all of them. You want data to be stored in each JVM. Well, the JVM can comfortably garbage collect what? A couple of gigs of data, right? Back then, especially 15, yeah. 20 years ago. Now with 64-bit, it goes up a fair bit, but still there's garbage collection pauses and all that, right? So you've got 10 JVMs, each of which is doing two gigs of, of RAM. You know, that's 20 gigs. That's not, if you're dealing with truly big data, then that's right. nothing, so the, right? The, the interesting thing about the Java garbage collector, especially in, in at that point in time, uh, it kind of changed with the newer implementations. Uh, it was not specifically like the size of the heap. It was the number of objects. And with the data yeah. grid, you want to store like millions and yep. billions of objects. And that was that was always the problem. So the way off-heap works is that you tell the JVM to allocate native memory. So out memory outside of the typical Java not being garbage collected. Right. And you serialize the objects to a byte representation, uh, kind of like serializable works, uh, but hopefully better and faster. Um, yeah. And you take those byte stream and pump it straight into the native memory. And when you so need the object back, you you read it back and, and deserialize and stuff like that. And so all distributed data grids, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but as 
and the ones I've all dealt with, all of them will support Java serialization. You can just give it a regular Java object. But right. if you really want to get performance, they have a serialization format as well uh, that you can or use. Or more than one. <laughs> or more than one. But yeah, but it's a binary format. It's like you just need to find a struct that maps the fields and the layout of your object. And then you serialize to that format. And then that gets written for high efficiency persistence, you know? Right. Uh, as right. opposed some, to using regular Java serialization. That lines, yeah. Yeah. And they normally offer like two functions, like a read and write function, and you right. decide how to to serialize it down to bytes and how to read it back. Right. Um, a, a little bit, uh, and and then you have some some fancy uh, protocol implementations or serialization implementations. Like uh, with Hazelcast, it was like, oh, what is it called? Um, uh, uh, don't remember right now from the top of my head, uh, but it basically was kind of like a fancier version of JSON. So you basically had like a name for a field and then you stored the value, which right. made the object a little bit bigger, but it also gave the, the option to um, to query actual values inside of the object without deserializing the whole object because you oh, knew where, nice. this, where this field is and, and what it looks like. So you just deserialize that specific byte array or chunk of the byte array. Um, and and uh, looked into that straight away, and that's and that's a good deal, especially if you're doing off heap memory, right? Then in that right. case, you know, the space of the object is no longer your problem. The speed by which you can query it uh, is the problem, and that gets fixed right there. That's cool. Um, right. Okay, so that's really really you know Hazelcast is. I wish people could just. Uh, it is so cool. It was one of those things, and and be, people don't even think about this, but like if you have a map. If you have an object that whose state is consistent across a cluster of connected nodes and it takes like nothing, just a few lines of static methods to get a new object that you can cast to a uh, map, then you you have suddenly a consistent way to share data across right. nodes in a cluster. So you can do pub sub. You have, you know, actually that was the other thing is Hazelcast wasn't just maps, they had data structures. Other ones too, right? Like uh, it, there were there were basically implementations for all kinds of Java standard library uh, containers, lists, yeah. maps, queues, um, I think sets, whatever. Was there a queue? Ah, uh, uh, yeah, there there was actually yeah. a queue, and that uh, these days there's actually like a raft backed um, consistent data structures as well uh, that give wow. you um, like full atomic locks and stuff like that. So we had also, we also had some things like atomic locks, but they weren't like hundred percent atomic. There were situations in like, um, cluster partitions and stuff where, where stuff could go wrong. And we always choose availability over yeah. a consistency, but with this like raft data structures, you can say, no, I want to go for full consistency. Um, and, and I drop out of availability in this case. Wow, that is so cool. It's like yeah, there, there's again. a lot of stuff still going on. Um, oh, and yeah. I, as I said, with my own startup, which I just left like a few weeks ago, um, we we use Tazercast quite extensively as well. In this case, not specifically as a data grid, but um, as an object cache. Um, yeah. We had fairly complex objects that were con uh, that that contained multiple or data from multiple different tables, and we calculate them once basically, and then we stored in Hazelcast. And we had internal. Uh, microservices per resource type. So there was a customer service and every change for a customer had to go through the service. So you knew exactly when to store the new object. Yeah. Uh, so we okay. basically, after like restarting the cache and filling it up once, we never had to go back down to the database except for write operations. It's like a materialized view of the... Uh, kind of, yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay. So here's a guest, awesome. 
Um, yep. Yeah, I mean, truly. Still is. I'm a, still great. <laughs> you know, I love the people. I love the code. I love everything about it. And by the way, it's Apache 2 licensed, right, for the yep, it is. open source stuff. You should definitely pay them. That's the other thing is that the, when Hazelcast came out, not only does it do 80% of what the other ones do, but like if there are some of those distributed data grids that you have to play a golf game with somebody to get, right? They're, they're obscene, obscene how much they, they can cost yeah, sometimes. So, so here's Hazelcast and it does 80%, 90% of that without any of the golf games. And it's, it's awesome. So good stuff. Okay, next. Then you went to Instana, right. which is a project that it was originally had um was it code centric uh, it, yeah uh, it was it was it was, a it was out, right right it was code centric and and one of the guys from apti um right so it came out of code centric being like one of the main resellers for apti at the time in germany right. i think um i'm not that deep in into the story to be honest um yeah. and it was it was mirko pavlo fabian and pete um making up this idea and coming up with the, like okay what should be um like a, a, a modern like up-to-date observability tool look like built right. from the ground up to support anything microservice basically yeah and 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 uh, environments like kubernetes and uh cloud foundry or whatever um so they came up with this idea um and for a while they they kept going um that was actually the first time they asked me to uh, to join them, uh, which is funny. I, I think it was not even a company at that point in time. It was still code-centric kind of internal. Um, and, and that's when I, I saw it. I actually, I actually spoke at code-centric years ago and they right. said, hey, you want to see this new thing? And I'm like, yeah, okay. And they showed me this thing called Insta. It's like, oh, that's going to change the world. And I was absolutely, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So um, after leaving Hazelcast, me and my wife wanted to do something. Uh, we couldn't get the funding done. Um, Sorry. Retrospectively, it is good because it was something for trade shows. Um, the last three years told me that would have been <laughs> like a massive failure. Um, Oof. Right. So any kind Nobody of funding. the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. So any anything funding uh, is is really hard in 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 the EU. So um, eventually, I, I put out a blog post what I what I learned and why it is so hard and what are like the the uh, the the cornerstones and the uh, roadblocks that you hit normally. Um, right. And in like fifty minutes after publishing, uh, Fabian dropped me a line. Hey, it's now the time to speak. I'm like, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I ended up at Instana. Um, been there uh three three years or so, maybe something around wow. that lines. Yeah, it's been a long time, man. <laughs> That's a great um, company too. Yep. Um so so uh Instana is is basically, as I said, it's an observability tool built for for microservice. A dynamic environment where you uh, start up and, and stop services over and over again yeah. um, because of health checks and whatever. And the cool thing about Instana, and that is what we got me totally hooked, is that every the 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 um, discovery of services and your environment and stuff like that is ninety nine percent automatic. It doesn't work for all languages like anything natively compiled like Go and C plus plus or stuff. Um, you can't instrument them on the on the on the fly. Well, you, you right. can, but you don't want to. There's a reason why you go for like natively compile. Um, right. But for anything else like Python, PHP, <laughs> Java, um, 
JavaScript, we, we had like automatic instrumentation and the discovery process realized, oh, there's a JVM, it connected to it, it injected the, the Java agent or the, the data collector, not the agent actually, the data collector uh, instrumented all the classes on the fly. Uh, it knew about all kinds of things, Spring Framework, Micrometer, uh, Micronaut, whatever. And it knew exactly like what are the best practices of, of observability metrics you want to collect. Um, and it automatically set up all the dashboards accordingly and, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, it's it's so simple. And they have uh, they have a easy, I think a huge part of that is documentation because it, right. again, it's it's one thing to build the integrations for all these different technologies, but it's quite another to know, hey, you just got to like, here's what you got to do make to make the JVM work, you know, um, or, or whatever. And uh, I remember they did a great job on that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I agree. So the funny thing is uh, throughout my career as a developer relations person, um, I always love the five minute rule. I always said, if a person can't figure out how to use something in like five minutes, the yep. project or the product sucks. <laughs> And it was, that was certainly true with Hazelcast, right? As he said, you, you, yeah. we had a t-shirt with like a few and lines of real. code. And it was literally it. Same yep. for Instana. We, you had like three lines of code in, in, in certain environments. It was actually a one-liner and you right. waited for a few minutes and it magically popped up in the, in the cloud environment. It, it figured out like, hey, it's a Linux operating system. It's actually bad Linux. Uh, here's your CPUs, here's your memory. You have like free JVMs running and and I don't know, like two Node.js servers. Hey, we instrumented all of that for you uh, on the fly. And it was it was magic. People literally at conferences, they couldn't believe it until you showed them. <laughs> it is, yeah. I remember that. I had that same experience. Like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. You know, it just knows. It knows, you know. Um, uh, and that that whole thing to me was always, again, it's not like there aren't other tools out there, you know? Right. You've got to be, you've got to have some really good ideas to feel like you can stand up and take on all these other different things. And the world has changed. I mean, you know, obviously I, you know, I used Nagios 20 years ago, you know? Uh, <laughs> I think and, everyone did. Yeah, I mean that that and then Hyperic and then you know nowadays my goodness everybody's got a cloud instrumentation story and and um yeah. by the, and that was even true when Instana first came out. So when I sat down I'm like okay show me what you got. I was not you know I wasn't trying to be rude but I just didn't think there was going to be anything to it. And then oh oh yeah, it was it was great, you know. What an amazing uh uh yeah technology and, and group. So, right. and, um, and so Instana was eventually acquired by IBM um, in, in, in spite of having the, their own observability tool, IBM. Who? Oh, IBM. Oh, right, right, right. Right. So IBM had its own observability tool, but they, they, I think they knew that it was not up to date. Uh, so it was a strategic acquisition. Um, I left shortly after, but not specifically for the acquisition, but uh, because I had my my own startup for a while uh, on the as a side project, and we wanted to, it was it was the right time to go full time and and really double down on that. Right. Well, cool. So, can you tell us about that? Right. Sure. Um, so what we what we did is uh, we came up with an IoT cloud environment for animal husbandry, so animal farms, animal uh, growing. 
uh, we we had 24/7 monitoring of barns and and fields and stuff. Um, uh, aggregated those data together with like medication that had to be given and and try to come up with some algorithms of trying to figure out okay how can we increase animal welfare how can we make sure that anything is uh, that that the the well animals really are grown in an organic fashion uh that we can prove it to the customers in the end um so my my thing was always like if we if we keep eating animals and i have to admit i'm a carnivore so i i, I really do um and i would not be happy being a vegan uh but my my point was always if i eat meat i want a good quality and i want to make sure that the animals are had a well life not a good one right Uh, but at least it was not like being forced into like a cage or anything um so we are living right now we're in a small village of around three and a half thousand people we have a butcher in the city or in, in the village that actually uh, tell stories about the farmers from inside of the village actually bring their pigs across the street. So they literally like just bring them across the street to the butcher, which is cool. Um, the, you certainly find that the quality and the taste and and all of that is much better. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to find a way to actually make people decide on that and say, okay, we 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 want to give them the option to understand how this animal is grown, what food it get or what feed it get uh was all of that organic uh was the soya gene uh man- manipulator or something like that um and also how we can prevent an- medication from gi- uh, being given just by the fact okay it seems like those kinds of influences temperature rise ammonia levels whatever uh, they seem to um, force that specific medicine so we try to give early alarms basically i always said it's it's uh instana for barns basically yeah it was all the same ideas uh, it was we actually internally called it um an observability for barns uh, nice oh that's and that's so i mean good for you that's really cool and so <laughs> Are you now, I mean, what happened? What's the, how's that going? Um, yeah, as I said, it's IoT cloud platform. The biggest thing that happened was like the short uh, chip shortage uh, for about a year. We There was oh, no way right. to meaningfully produce any any hardware, at least not right. in, in the sense of meaningful price uh, you could give down to, to customers yeah. if you even were able to get components. Um, some, we, we had like three layout changes in the, in the PCB, in the carrier board. And whenever we had like the first carrier board for testing, uh, even the newly layouted elements or components couldn't be get anymore. It was, it it is a whole shit show right now. Uh, And it still is, um, apart from that customer requests and customer, uh, love was never a real issue, which is funny because it's like a super conservative and old um industry right it's saying right. in, in the states in in europe it just doesn't matter sure. it's all like it, it didn't really change for the last i don't know like maybe 100 150 years or so obviously you get a little bit of digitization but not like a lot um so yeah um what happened was basically i set my own like deadline for for end of summer um to to get like the the new um vc round done um we couldn't close it so i took my chances on something else 
And the okay. folks over at Timescale ask for, for a lot of time. So it's it's interesting. So with my own startup, I was using Hazelcast. I was using Instana for observability. And right. we use Timescale quite extensively for all the IoT metrics. And that is where I am now. Uh, so there is some kind of like a rat string uh, going through my, my life, I guess. Uh, right. So can you tell me about Timescale? Sure. Um, so as I as I hinted in in the beginning, Timescale is a time series database, basically a plugin for Postgres. Like Postgres is like geograph uh, geographics data on, on Postgres. Timescale is time series on data. Um, the way it works is um, that the data internally is stored in in what we call data chunks or time chunks. Uh, it's it's basically a hidden table, and you can imagine the the original or the, the overall table to be some kind of a view of all this like internal data storage stuff. Um, the, the cool thing about that is that if you query data, uh, you literally just have to, to query the data portion that is necessary um, based on, on, the, on the data request, based on the time request. So if you say, I want to have data from, from January to August, 2022, uh, Timescale figures out with a with a query planner who like okay what actual internal tables do I have to query to get all those information from I don't know like the 200 400 whatever uh, internal data chunks so that is kind of how how Timescale sets up all of this stuff and 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 tries to optimize and, and speed up queries um, for any kinds of metrics um, most specifically stuff. Uh, like IoT data, um, observability metrics, um, stuff like that, basically. I love it. And so it's built on top of Postgres. Right. It's it's built on top of Postgres. And uh, I have a hard love for, for anything Postgres for Me too. a lot of years. I've never been really active, like in the community itself. Right. Um, but I always love the ecosystem. There's, I, I think you can search for, database technology or, or or data model technology acts and postgres and there's probably some plugin you can find for postgres um no matter if it's a draft database a key value store or whatever oh yeah yeah i mean people so i mean first of all just as a sql database it's rock solid it's got absolutely i, mean, I remember uh in the early 2000s there was a uh, company that was trying to make postgres sql compatible with oracle and they did it, right? You can actually run valid P PSQL programs, you know, yeah. using the using the programming language for Oracle. You can actually run those programs on Postgres. I was like, wow. It, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't like 100%, but like close enough that 99% of the apps they, they wanted to migrate, including really big ERP right. and CRM systems could move over. I'm like, okay, that's a great, that's amazing. And, and how much does Oracle cost? Oh yeah, it's open source. You know, right, right. <laughs> really hard to argue with its value there. And then you just mentioned the extensions, and the extensions are where I think you just—it's hard. I mean, first of all, there's multiple programming languages. You can use Python yeah. and uh, and and even Java, I think, and a bunch of other languages uh, you, you inside can use of Java, JavaScript. Uh, you can yeah. use the P PLSQL, which is like the Postgres right. language. There is so many so, stuff. Such a rich uh, uh, tool, right? And it's fast. I mean, and 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 then obviously, I work at. Uh, uh, I work on the Spring team, a part of uh, Tanzu, which is a division of VMware. Uh, in that stack somewhere, we also have Greenplum, right? Greenplum is a, yep. uh, it's a 
massively scaled Postgres, basically. Um, there's a, there's a, there's Yugabyte, right? Which is also another massively scaled, massively like, distributed have, uh, Postgres. You have Citus, yeah. which was acquired by Microsoft, uh, which right. is a, a distributed uh, Postgres. Um, and 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 because you you brought up like Oracle uh, SQL yeah. or the Oracle SQL thing, um, Amazon just recently, I think a few weeks ago, um, open sourced like a T SQL implementation uh, as a plugin, so you can now run anything Microsoft SQL Server on Postgres. I, I don't remember the name. I just tried to come up with the with a project name, but I'm pretty sure you you gonna link it. Um, and I, and I think it's actually a hundred percent compatible implementation of T-SQL, including wow. all the variables and stuff like that. It's, I look at the code and I was like, you guys are insane. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, Postgres is, is just a great, just forget about all the cool stuff that it's just a, an amazing SQL database. And that's, which, that's just the open source stuff. You know, you don't have to know anything about it. You just have to know that. And by the way, it's had great SQL capabilities for, you know, 30 years, right? It's been great for a long time. What I remember the hardest thing for, I, I, so I look at the history, right? There's MySQL and Postgres and and it always annoyed me that MySQL became so prolific, right? And I think a big part of the reason was because, <laughs> because it was just, MySQL was so easy to get installed and there was yeah. a Windows version, you know, from early days, whereas Postgres didn't do Windows uh for the longest time you know i mean like i you know it's only recently it's in the last 10 years you could start running postgres on windows you couldn't develop against it you couldn't play with it so if you're just trying to get like a lamp app going i guess it wasn't as easy to reach for postgres at the time right but now it's, I, I agree. it's everywhere yeah I, I agree i think one of the biggest problems was always like the the user uh management that postgres apply to because especially yeah. when you when you set it up in, in in linux you have to be in the right user to get psql right. and stuff like that so um it's it was trivial and 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 it's it's still i think that is one chunk where the postgres community could do much better in this like getting started section but it right. as you said it it became much easier over the last couple of years there's a lot of good tutorials not specifically on the postgres website itself or documentation um, the but Docker the image. documentation itself is is insanely yeah. huge um right well yeah. and plus now with docker just go to the docker image for postgres there's like a couple snippets there you can get a fully authenticated ready to use postgres instance up and running in like a minute it's awesome it's yeah. never been this easy and so if it's as easy to use Postgres as it is to use MySQL, I, there's no scenario where I would ever choose MySQL now, right? There's none. There's zero situations where it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, so I love Postgres. Anyway, so and, and 15 years ago, I had this wonderful situation where I needed to solve some geospatial problems. You've, we've all built something like where you want to yep. search for, you know, show me all the stores near me. That's not a unusual request and yet it's a very hard thing to solve in a straight up database so postgres has this beautiful plugin ecosystem where yeah. third parties can implement c and pl scale pl psql uh and provide a solution and that's when i you know i if you look at my blog justlong.com go back like 2010 i've got posts about post gis and all that i mean it's just such an amazing piece of technology and it, that got me from just a fan to like i love postgres right so now fast forward time series databases are a they're not they're not necessarily new but they're a less 
familiar uh, kind of right. database that's optimized for storing statistics over time, right? So right, so they they're certainly not new. Um, I think the the original thing, which was probably called a historian database, I think was the original term, is somewhere from the late seventies, early eighties. So it's certainly not right. a new database concept, uh, but it becomes more prevalent over the last couple of years because data. Uh, the, the amount of data just keeps increasing that we want to store and especially with all the analytics data metrics but also anything customer information like uh, how did people move around your website um what do they what did they buy um to give recommendations all that kind of stuff is time series data and it just becomes bigger and bigger of of a market share and Timescale is not the only time series database. I think a common like uh, or like the obvious choice for a lot of people initially is like Influx um, uh, right. or InfluxDB. Um, there's a lot of others um, and they all have their like pros and cons. And I was basically hooked with Timescale when I figured out it's a plugin for Postgres. And I was like, I knew I wanted to use Postgres and awesome. I can use the same database for that. Well, right. eventually we ended up doing two Postgres instances, one like uh, asynchronously uh, replicated for anything IoT metrics because it was just not like super important and one synchronously replicated, two-phase commit, blah, all the ugly, horrible stuff for anything customer information. Um, right. But but it was still Postgres and that was what got me hooked initially. And, and in difference to what every good software architect tells you, I did not do any testing. I did not do any evaluation phase. I saw Postgres knew. and I was like, ah, that's what I'm going with. And if I if I hit a roadblock or if it's too slow, I can still reconsider. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, um, if you want to use Postgres these days, don't use the Postgres Docker container used for timescale. Just, just saying. Oh yeah, totally. Because it gets you <laughs> all of Postgres plus some more, why not? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and in terms of the extensibility um, of Postgres, I think Timescale shows exactly well how amazing that works. So what the what the guys are working on right now um, in 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 our uh, toolkit team is actually pipelining, where you basically wow. put multiple aggregation uh, operators right after another. Like, hey, um, give me like the mean value then do some percentiles on that. I, I, I don't know, what, whatever. Um, and instead of using CTEs, so like the common table expressions or stuff, you could literally write it uh, with like an arrow in between and say, hey, from this function, go here, go there. And, and that all works just with like the standard uh, extension mechanism with, of Postgres, which is completely nuts. Right. It's so good. It's so good. So how do I consume... So I just, is it literally just I install a plugin and then I have these new types and functions available to me? Uh, as I said, uh, in, the, in the best case, you just use the timescale Docker container. It has all of that uh, pre-installed. Um, but if you have like a Postgres installation, um, it's in all standard rep repos. You, you could use, uh, you install it or you download the, or clone the, the Git repository, you build it straight away. Um, it's a little bit more cumbersome that way because you obviously need the Postgres sources to compile it. Um, so the easiest way is just like apt-get timescale yeah. 
or install yeah. timescale. And, and if you have Postgres already installed and, and app knows about that, that's great. Uh, otherwise, you will install whatever post, Postgres 14 or, or whatever is uh, current at that point so, in time. So and, it's current with the latest and greatest Postgres as we speak. Hmm? Sorry? It's up to date with the latest and greatest Postgres. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're, okay. we're actually trying, trying hard to be up to Postgres, which is 15, I think, the next version uh, on wow. day one. So that's our goal. Ah, so cool. um, and the team is working hard on that. Um, so that will be that will be really, really awesome. We really try that this will work out. Um, so now, wow. So I've got this beautiful Postgres instance that I can use uh, with the latest and greatest technology. There's a Docker image that's free. It's, it's, it's open source? It, it, it is. Well, that's where it, it is a little bit more complicated. Um, so it okay. is a pack, there's an Apache 2 licensed version. Uh, it does not okay. have all the features because in, in the past, it was Apache 2 license and an enterprise version. Um, eventually, what happened is um, Timescale as a company doubled down to say, okay, we're going for the cloud service. So there's Timescale Cloud, and I totally recommend using that because it's the managed solution and you get all the greatest features and all the, all the beauty of it. Um, so all of the enterprise features became like a community version. So now there's Apache 2, which is obviously open source and free. All the community stuff is also open source. So open source in the sense of you can read all the, all the code, uh, okay. but you still need to have like, you need to agree to the community license, which says, hey, you cannot use Timescale as a hosted cloud environment or a close okay. to cloud solution. So you cannot build your own Timescale cloud and offer that as a service. So that's the only that's thing. Fair. Yeah, that's right? that seems reasonable to me. Yeah. Right. But, um, but for that reason, it's not a FOSS approved license anymore, which um, sets some people off. Um, and we're, we are looking into ways of how we could solve that in the future. Um, the Apache license does not have all the features, like anything cool, like compression and stuff is, is not in it. But as I said, as like a product it, or as, as one of the components in your own service, in your own system, it is perfectly fine to use the community version. It's one of the most common asked question uh, or commonly asked questions. Like, can I actually use that? And what are the, um, the, the requirements? As long as it's just like one component in your system and it's not your main product, uh, go for it. Of course, go for the of course. Yeah, I want you to. I want that business to be around. So yeah, good luck. That's exactly. Awesome. So okay. So you've got this database, um, and normally when I think about time series, I think about things like in the Kubernetes space. It's very common to use uh, Prometheus. How do I contribute right. data? How do I get my data into this thing? First of all. Right. Um, so there's a couple of ways. First of all, obviously you can you can use. Uh, timescale as itself. You can set up your, your data storage basically the same way we did it with my company. Um, we, we came up with our own data model and we pushed the IoT metrics straight in it. And IoT it, metrics so it's is like also a SQL just, table? It's, it's, it's a standard SQL table, at least from the looks of it. So you, you just okay. insert data into like whatever your metrics table is and, and timescale makes all the magic with the chunking and making sure that everything is, is laid out the way you want it. So you create a regular um, table and then you tell timescale, this is the table I want to treat as my metrics. Right. Some, something like that. You set up, you, okay. you set up like a standard PG table and then there is like a magic function telling the database, hey, uh, take this table and apply some black magic to it to make it a hyper a hyper table of this which is what we call like this this like chunked view of a table and you, you use it like any standard postgres table you can 
add indexes, you can add triggers, you insert into yeah. this table. Um, it, it, it just feels like Postgres. And then so that shows the scenes, how extensible the whole system is. But so be, that's awesome. But so behind the scenes, even though you're just writing to this thing, there's this hyperscale, this hyper table engine behind the scenes is actually right. taking it writes and routing them to partitions or chunks or whatever buckets right, from different right. times. That's so cool. That's so and, cool. And if you and if you if you look at how Timescape builds this thing, there's like um, an internal schema where you can see all the internal tables, and the internal tables are actually regular Postgres tables um, that they are created based on like timeframes um, and 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 some other things. You can put additional dimension if you need to, um, yeah. but internally it's all Postgres. So we didn't build like a new storage engine. Uh, we doubled down on the rock solid Postgres stuff that is already right. around. Um, and even if you uh, even if you you um, apply compression. Uh, compression is on the fly. Um, you basically tell it like any any set of data older than I don't know, like seven days. Compress it. Um, it will look at the data columns or the data types of the of the actual columns, and will choose one of the um, I don't know, like seven or eight or whatever uh, different compression algorithms and say, okay, for for JSON B, I'll I'll take that one. For a float, I will take that one. So it will compress based on the actual data type. But even the the compressed table again is set out as some kind of a columnar uh, like data storage yeah. but it's still a postgres table so we didn't wow. write our own storage engine because we believe or not me i, I just yeah. recently joined but the the folks over at timescale believed that it makes sense to go with a rock solid thing and not write your own storage engine because that is the hardest part right you want your sure. storage engine to be rock solid to be sure that whatever happens there is a way to recover data. Wow. So that was that was the main reason for not writing your own like storage driver. You're speaking whatever. my language. Speaking my language. And also this this means that all the things that I would do with a all, all the operations, you know, uh run books and skills that I've built up to manage a Postgres instance still apply for backups, for right, recovery, exactly. for error handling, for scale. All that stuff yeah. is just the same as always. That is Oh, I love this. I right, love this so it's, much. It's, it's all just extension functions, C implementations uh, for SQL additions and stuff like that. It's it's all just SQL. Um, right. So, uh, but the the when you when you have something like Prom, uh, Prometheus in place or anything like that, uh, there's actually one other project that is around for I don't know maybe a little bit more than a year or so. I never really used it myself. Uh, it's called PromScale, uh, which is basically an in between service wrapper for timescale um, offering uh, a service endpoint that looks like a Prometheus. So anything Prometheus can be dropped straight into that. It will take care of all the schema generation, all the data layouting. Um, it has a full implementation as far as I know, 100% compatible to PromQL. Uh, wow. So you can go both ways, insert and read. But the cool thing is even though you 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 send in data as Prometheus metrics. Obviously, you still have a SQL database underneath, and you can do all the fancy aggregations. Anything that works in Postgres works with those data. So even even fancy or crazy stuff like you can have a standard Postgres table and a hyper table and a PostGIS table and I don't know what else right. in the same query and join data between all of that, and it will just magically work. 
Because it's <laughs> and also all remember, the same database. Postgres has, I think, XML data types and JSON as well. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's I, an amazing database. I'm not sure um, if there's an XML data type, but I, there's, there? certainly, oh, maybe not. there's certainly JSON and JSONB, so text representation right. and binary representation. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm not, I'm not sad if it doesn't have XML, but it... Uh, well, it there, like there's it, most it, probably it at least one plugin adding that data type as, as a capability, which is also like the incredible thing, right? Um, so one thing I really found weird about Postgres, like whenever I looked at it, it doesn't have unsigned data types. Uh, but right. there's there's like five or six different uh, extension plugins to actually bring in unsigned data types into Postgres. And it just magically works. And it, it's the same thing. Right. You have like yeah. an unsigned data type plugin, and you can actually use that plugin as a column in, in timescale. To be honest, yeah. I wouldn't wow. know how the compression handles that. We probably get but some. It, it's a thing. Right? <laughs> there is, by the way, a XML type. Is it? XML oh, wow. parse, never use it a document one. content, whatever. Yeah, it's I mean it's just an amazing database. So okay. So anyway, time scale. I I, I want this. I'm gonna try it out, right? And obviously the when you're dealing with this kind of data, like sensor data or stock tickers or just anything right. that goes up and down over time, that's a lot of data. You could get millions and millions of rows quickly, right? So if you imagine doing yep. something every every second of a day, right? Um, or hell, heck, even just like every minute of a day for a year, you know, that gets to be a lot of data very quickly. So it's cool that they have this chunked um, thing. What, what is it like at that scale? If you have, uh, you know, that much data, does it slow down noticeably? Um, it, it all depends on how you actually query the data. Obviously, the more data you want to query in a single request, uh, the, the com more complicated it gets. Um, right. But um, on the other hand, uh most like most queries are like give me the last three months or give me give me average values so there's a couple of ways to do that so one thing that um timescale offers as as a solution to that if you know certain specific things need to be aggregated over time for example i want to have like i don't i don't know like uh the bitcoin yeah. course over the uh over the course of the last year and i want to have daily values there's something like some There's there's something um, like uh, uh, a continuous aggregate, something like, imagine it to be some kind of a materialized view. Um, and the materialized view uh, is automatically kept up to date by, by timescale itself. Um, so the, the way it works is you, you set up this materialized view and the uh, timescale in, inserts some, some hooks into the actual hyper table. Um, and I think now it stopped recording, right? Yeah, it was still recording while you were gone, but. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Um, all right, so let's get back to, um, where, where were we? I don't know. Um, XML data. Uh, yeah. Blah, 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 well, so let me ask that last question again. Um, hold on. So if I if I um if it's I have not lots of data, oh, is it not recording? No, no, it is. It is okay. Sorry. Okay. Uh, if I have lots of data in a uh, a table, you know, if you think about the kind of data that you would store in a time series database, um, you know, thousands or 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 millions of records per day. No, you know, not to mention months and years. 
Um, what what is it? How does it perform? Is it slow down noticeably in that case, or how does the uh, database handle that kind of data? Right. So um, that mostly depends on on how you query. Obviously, the more data you query, uh, the slower the query gets, just like with any kind of standard database, right? Um, but most of the time, uh, one of the most common use cases, for example, give me give me the 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 Bitcoin um, like uh, uh, exchange rate for the last three months or something. Um, and most of the time, when you when you do those kinds of queries, you can, you have something like okay. Just give me one value per day, or maybe maybe like half day value, something like that. And and for for that reason, uh, first of all, you can query it live, um, depending on how you laid out your data. If you have additional um, dimensions, that may be perfectly fine. Uh, depends all on on your like response time uh, guarantees and your SLAs and stuff. Um, but one thing, uh, Timescale actually has support for materialized views. Materialized views in a fashion of we call it uh, continuous aggregates. Uh, and continuous for the reason that they are automatically being kept up to date by timescale itself. Uh, meaning you you, you still uh, push in the, the raw information, insert the raw information into your table, uh, just as you expected. And then there's like a batch job running in the background, basically saying, okay, um, I don't know, like once a, once an hour or so, I need to see if I if I do something, if I have to to set up something or or recalculate something, and then it does all the magic for you. And you can use this like materialized view um, or continuous aggregate as your your data source for this like data graph. Then, so you basically have all the like daily values already pre-calculated, and that is just as fast as any kind of other table you would query. Awesome, awesome. Um, this is, I can't wait to try it out. So where do people go to learn more about this? Right. Um, well, as, as we said already, uh, there's a Docker image. Uh, we have a Kubernetes Helm chart, which is unfortunately fairly AWS specific. Uh, so if you are on anything else, uh, I'd recommend fork it, um, and, and change it. Uh, we've been on, um, on Azure. So if you are on Azure and, you are uh, want to try that out. I can help you a little bit with that. Uh, but the easiest way is just go to timescale.com. Uh, time, yeah, timescale.com or timescaledb.com. Uh, uh, both works. And then there's like a button in the right hand corner, right top corner, and it says try timescale. Sign up for the cloud. You get 30 days of all the awesomeness without installing anything. Um, and the way you connect to it is with any database driver. Just like so just, any Postgres driver you can imagine. So if you're using ArcGDBC for reactive database actives, that just works out of the box. If you're using the JDBC driver, that just works out of the box. Uh, if you use PGX for Go, that works out of a box. If you use uh, JetBrains Data uh, Grip, that works out yep. of the box. It's anything that has a PG driver just works. Nice. Um, and what about you, my friend? Are you on the internet? And if so, where do people find you? If you want to be um, found. No, I'm not on the internet. I I, I gave up on that. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, I'm I'm on on Twitter, uh, Noctarius Two K for for the people who look for me. Um, I'm Noctarius on on uh, GitHub. Uh, you can find me on Facebook uh, with my real name. Um, and I I don't know. Uh, I think Twitter is the way to just get a hold of me and and ask questions and stuff. How do you spell Noctarius? Uh, N O C T-A-R-I-U-S. Awesome. All right, my friend. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been great talking with you. Obviously, I can't wait to bump into you uh, out in the road again. Uh, you know, 
And thanks for having yeah. me. It was it was great chatting with you. Uh, it's been a long time. Um, Likewise, yeah. Yep. Stupid pandemic ruins all the fun. <laughs> um, uh, not only that, there's there's more stuff to come, I guess. Um, oh sure, uh, <laughs> my friend. As as always. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, and see you. A Beautiful Podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review, uh, as it really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs's Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.